Amen. I love that line where it says, for I am his and he is mine. I'm hearkening back to Song of Solomon where um, it's confessed, I am my beloved's. My beloved's is mine. There's such a close mutuality between God and the believer that um, he has given himself to us, become ours, uh, just as then we give ourselves to him and become his, belonging to one another in the closest of relationships. And that's why we can have such confidence in Jesus. We're united with him by faith. Uh, the, the text and message this evening is not going to be what's found in your bulletins. Um, it's going to be from Mark chapter 6. So you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 45 to 52. Mark 6, 45 to 52. which is not page 909 in their Bibles, but I'm sure you can find it. Mark 6, this passage is a well-known one, and it comes right after Jesus has uh, splitten the loaves and multiplied them for the thousands upon thousands, and it's come nightfall, and uh, they're about to depart. So it's been a, it's been a biz, busy, packed day. The people are headed home, and this is our text now then in Mark 6, starting in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, hearing, and speaking forth of his word. Let's ask his help as we look to this together. Heavenly Father, we have no spiritual apprehension apart from you, apart from your work. So we ask once again that you would open our eyes, open wide our hearts to receive all that you are for us and are to us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. When you think of people of great courage, what do you think of? Uh, you might think of people who fought in battles, heroes of various sorts, superheroes even, people boldly facing intense challenges, fighting for what's right, even in the midst of tremendous odds. But there's heroes of many sorts. Um, back in 1999, there was a competition across Canada, where I'm from, I'm a Canadian, and they were asking who Canada's greatest hero was. It was this cross-national vote of who might Canada's greatest hero be. And the result might have been surprising. The, the greatest hero Canadians voted was, was, it was a man named Terry Fox. Now, you might not have heard of Terry Fox, but Terry Fox, he was, at one point, he was a vibrant teenager who especially loved playing basketball. He loved running. But well, when he was 18, he was diagnosed with cancer. And the cancer resulted in him losing his leg. 
and it, it was a progressive, can- terrible cancer. And so what he decided he wanted to do was to raise money for cancer research. And so he decided to embark on a cross-Canada marathon. He thought he would run across the country with one good leg and one uh, prosthetic leg. And this garnered so much national attention, he started running. He was running the length of an entire marathon every single day, hobbling his way, raising much money for cancer research. The donations flooded in. He, he made it most of the way across Ontario. So he got about halfway through the country, but then his cancer progressively got worse and he ended up passing away, only halfway meeting his goal. And yet he's hailed as Canada's greatest hero. Why is that? Well, there's many reasons, but I think preeminent among them is the amount of courage he showed. To in, in the midst of his trial, to yet embark on this really courageous journey for the sake of what's good. The, the highway with the location where he stopped his race is called the Terry Fox Courage Highway. And so the question then we might ask is, how does one not only um, continue on in the face of hardships, but um, press on and not, not give up? It's this quality of courage. And there's many people here in this room who've exercised tremendous courage in Jesus throughout their Christian lives. There's believers who will receive a crown in heaven greater than Terry Fox's um, medal of honor he got from the Canadian Prime Minister. Because uh, you see, the Christian life is filled with battles, battles of different sorts that require tremendous courage to engage and not give up. Battles rage all around us. Paul told Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. This life is a fight. It's a battle, and it takes courage to press on. And the disciples in this passage today, they're battling this fierce storm. The wind and the waves are against them, and they're pressing on. They're trapped. They're in the dark. They've been toiling um, by the time our story comes to them for nine hours. Nine hours in the darkness, rowing against the wind and the waves. And yet, Christ comes to them with these encouraging words. Take heart. It is I Do not be afraid. Take courage, he says. Fear not, it's me. I'm here. And like these disciples, we too are often rowing against the storms of life, the particular trials and difficulties that we find ourselves in. Perhaps fighting physical illness like Terry Fox, or struggles mentally and emotionally, fighting against pernicious sin, fighting for your marriage, fighting for a child, being drawn into the world, fighting to make ends meet, fighting for peace in the midst of trouble, fighting to find comfort in the midst of anxiety and sorrow. And so maybe this evening you feel like these disciples stuck, rowing in the darkness, battling wind and waves that feel relentless, like they're never going to end. And would that we would hear that same word of Christ tonight, that he would encourage our hearts with that thought, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. The theme of the message is courage in Christ. And it's, it's easy to be courageous when we're certain of the outcome, when you know what's going to happen. But for most of our trials, we have, we have no idea the results. We have no idea where the road we're on is leading us. We, we don't know if, like Terry Fox, we might only accomplish half of that which we 
with which we wish we would. Therefore, we need to find a courage not in our circumstances, but a courage that comes from outside of us. The courage, we will see, that comes from looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage shows us three ways in which Christ encourages us in these sorts of battles. Three ways to find courage in him. We can take courage in Christ's prayers, find courage in Christ's presence, and take courage in Christ's power. Christ's prayers, his presence, and his power. Let's first consider courage from Christ's prayers. The text begins in Mark 6.45 saying, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And so again, Jesus' evening is drawing near, the crowds are going away, and Jesus sends his disciples in the boat towards Bethsaida. But he goes up the mountain to pray, and I'm sure the disciples were confused, why isn't Jesus coming with us? Uh, Why did he go off and tell us to go without him? It might have seemed rather odd to them. And I wonder if we can note right at the start here that as the divine son of God, uh, Jesus knew what trial was awaiting these disciples of his. He knew what he was sending them out in this boat into, probably one of the most difficult nights of their entire life. Uh, The storm didn't catch Jesus off guard. And just because you're battling a storm doesn't mean that you're outside the will of Christ. It's often, like these disciples, in walking in direct obedience to Christ that we come across some of these greatest trials. But we know that in this case, the storm was used as an occasion for Christ to manifest his presence in a particularly powerful way to his disciples. And so we read in verse 46 that after he had taken leave of them, that is, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So Jesus retires to the mountain to pray, modeling for us the importance of prayer. And even though Jesus has been ministering all day long to the crowds in the heat, um, yet he doesn't find this time just to relax, but he continues his work wrestling in prayer with his Father. Jesus gives us this example. He's always retiring to pray, and he teaches us to follow in his footsteps. If the Son of God needed to withdraw from the bustle of this world to find time to pray, how much more do we? And I wonder if the disciples remembered all that Christ had taught them. If in this trouble, if they were going to Christ with prayer, if they were knowing that they needed to be looking to him even now. And in our trials, in these storms, uh, prayer is one of the greatest assets that we have, one of the greatest gifts the Lord's given us. It's a direct line to our Heavenly Father. And it's so easy in a comfortable age to forget the need we have of God and the need we have to be constantly calling upon Him. But it's in trials that very often we're most drawn to God. We most clearly see our weakness and our need. You see, prayer is meant for the battle. Prayer is meant for the heat of it. Uh, very often we, we, we confuse what prayer is for. Uh, John Piper uses the example of, too often we think of prayer like, like an inter-household um, intercom. To, to buzz in, to, to, call up, to call down supplies or some food from the upstairs. To, to suit our needs. But prayer, he says, is more like a wartime walkie-talkie to be used in the midst of the battle, to call in reinforcements, to get guidance and direction from our captain, to get the help that we need. And we have access in our trials to Christ, the captain of our salvation, 
The one who has all supplies, the one who promises in Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So let us courageously go to Christ in prayer. And although it's critical that we learn to pray to Christ, what I want us to focus on here is actually the prayers of Christ. A great encouragement for us is found in the reality that Christ himself prays for us. He is our great heavenly intercessor. Uh, From just an earthly perspective, it's so encouraging to know even that a friend is praying for you. Um, I, I have a friend named Caleb, and he prays for his friends. And then he texts them in the middle of the week and says, Hey, I just finished praying for you this morning, just wanted you to know. And that always encouraged my heart so much to, to hear. And I wonder, I'm like, is that a little bit self-serving to tell someone that you just prayed for them? But then I thought, when I hear that, I am entirely encouraged by him. I'm so encouraged to know that he's been praying for me. Not just that he's saying that he would, but that he actually just did. We can encourage our friends by letting them know that we have prayed for them. And not only that we will do so. And if it encourages our hearts to know that our friends, our brothers and sisters in the faith are praying for us, How much more of an encouragement is it to know that Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, is interceding for his people? And not just corporately, but interceding for each one of his sheep in particular. We're told in this passage that Christ prayed. He went up to the mountain to pray. And we're not given the details of this prayer, but we know from the other prayers of Christ, Christ recorded in Scripture, what was his pattern? He gave us the Lord's Prayer as a pattern which involves praying for the church. He, he tarried all night in prayer just to pick his disciples. He prayed for his disciples in John 17 individually. He prayed for Peter, that Peter's faith wouldn't fail in his trials. So surely he is praying once again for his disciples in their trials. In these nine hours Christ spent alone on the hilltop, you can be sure he was praying for his disciples. And if this was true for them now, it's so much more true for you and I now. For Christ intercedes for his church from heaven. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for the ones he saves. A commentator, Matthew Henry, sees in this passage before us, Um, that it's an encouragement to us to depend upon the intercession Christ is making for us at the right hand of the Father, a continual intercession. What a comfort it is to know that Jesus prays for us. And so in your trial, certainly pray for others, but most of all, take courage from knowing that Jesus is praying for you, praying that your faith would not fail. Matthew Henry again says, It's a comfort to Christ's disciples in a storm that their master is in the heavenly mount, interceding for them. And so we take courage from Christ's prayers, but even more, we can take courage from Christ's presence itself. We look once again at verse 48 in our text. Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. In our trials, there's few things more helpful and comforting than the mere presence 
of a loved one. Often what's not needed is, is some particular words that need to be heard, but to have someone sitting by you, to put their arm around you, that's often what's most in need, just that presence. Because presence is powerful. And Christ loves to be present with his suffering saints. He's closer than a brother, and he is pleased to comfort and encourage people with his presence. It's often in our battles and trials that we sense the presence of Christ most powerfully. It's often in the depths of our sorrow that we find the heights of grace. The presence of Christ encourages us. And even though there is a true sense, like Jesus told his disciples in the Great Commission, that he is with us always, even to the end of the age, we don't always walk in a consistent awareness and acknowledgement of the presence of Christ with us. We can go a long time without actually experiencing his particular presence. And at times we do feel like these disciples, like we're toiling alone, like we're rowing against the wind and the waves, and Christ is far, far away up on that mountain, as it were. But even while Christ seemed distant, Christ saw his disciples. Verse 48 says that he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. How he saw them from the mountain when they were out on the sea, I don't know. But Jesus saw and knew their trouble. And sometimes it feels like Christ is is delaying in coming to us to comfort us with his presence. But we trust that Christ sees and knows. And he will come and reveal himself in a seasonable time. He has such compassion for us. And he may be at distance for a reason that we don't know. But we're still called to call out to him to hope in his faithful love. But thanks be to God that Christ visits us seasonably at just the right time. Galatians 4 says that at just the right time, Jesus appeared in the incarnation to save his people from their sins. And at just the right time, Christ comes to us when he knows we need to see his presence. And for the disciples, it was about the fourth watch of the night that he came to them walking on the sea, seeming as if he meant to pass by them. The fourth watch being about 3 a.m., right in the middle of the night. They've been toiling for the last nine hours against the wind. That would be physically, emotionally exhausting. I can't imagine rowing against wind and waves for that long. But now that Christ has chosen to come to his people, to come to his disciples' aid, nothing, not these wind, not these waves, not the laws of physics could stand in his way. This mere water couldn't stop the Christ of earth, and no power or cosmic uh, rule above can stop the Christ of heaven from coming to his people's aid when he desires to come to them. Christ's timing is perfect. Verse 49 says that when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Sometimes in in a season, in a frightful season, everything seems frightful. Um, when, when, when you're in the dark at night and walking around at night, everything seems a little bit more frightful than normally. And, and the disciples don't even recognize that it's Christ right away. And in a season of trial, everything can put us to flight and to fear. But Christ doesn't leave his disciples in doubt and fear, but he reveals himself to them in verse 50. They all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And so his disciples that are troubled and fearful, 
Christ reveals himself to them in his wise and good timing. He reveals himself by speaking to them, by bringing forth that voice that they had heard again and again, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. What a glorious encouragement. Christ says, take heart, or to say, take courage, fear not. He says, it's me. And what more do the disciples need to hear than, it is I. And that is the voice that we need to hear. It's just, Jesus is here. Jesus is near. What more do we need than just the presence of Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the faithful Lord of the heavens and the earth? I'm sure many of us have testimonies of where Christ met us in our darkest moments and his presence comforted us. I know for myself that in in some of the hardest months of my life that those were the times where I knew the presence of Christ more closely than at any other moment. And it's when you come to these points that the words of the psalmist in Psalm 73 become more true to you than ever before. That though my heart and flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. To be able to say, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing I desire besides you. Because there's nothing else. There's nothing else that can meet us there except for God. He is the only one with all sufficiency and all supply. Matthew Henry again says that Christ's presence with us in a stormy day, it's enough to make us of good cheer though clouds and darkness be round about us. The presence of Christ is such a wonderful gift to the child of God. And Christ, he encourages us by praying for us, by coming and granting us his presence. But we also can take courage from the fact of Christ's power. He's not just a mere sentimental, good-hearted being, but the all-powerful creator. We see in our passage an example of Christ's divine power. He walks to his disciples on the water. This isn't a magic trick. This isn't a slate of hand. This is Christ, the creator of the world, seeing the created order submit to him completely. The water bears him up at his word. This needs no scientific explanation. It's a miracle. And we know, boys and girls, you might have seen um, nature shows where bugs walk on the water or that certain lizards run across the water. But we know no man can walk on the water. Yet Jesus walks. The waves submit to him. Amazingly. No water could stop Christ from coming to his disciples. And nothing can stop Christ from coming to you if he has willed to do so. Um, As we sang, no, no scheme of hell, no power of man can pluck us away from Jesus. The waves submit to Christ, the winds as well. In verse 51, we read, He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And the disciples were utterly astounded. Notice, Christ didn't even command the wind to cease. He got into the boat, and the wind just ceased. And this exercise of power over the very natural elements testifies to Christ's power as God. As the God-man himself, it testifies to his divinity. And so we can take courage knowing that the Christ we love is the Christ who is the creator of all things, the one to whom everything in this world must submit, because this world is his world. We can be confident that Christ has power and control over all things. 
And isn't it reassuring when you're in a situation that would usually seem out of control, but when you're with someone that you trust knows what they're doing, how much more comforting it is. I have an uncle who's a pilot, and he has a small plane, and I've got to go with him in it a few times. And this small little plane, you feel like, how could this stay in the sky? Uh, This seems like a bad idea. But then I trust that my uncle has flown lots. He knows exactly what he's doing. And even though I'm thousands of feet up in this tiny little plane, I I have no fear because I trust that my uncle can pilot this plane. We we love that hymn, uh, Jesus, What a Friend, for sinners, and, and it, it tells us this. It says, he, my pilot, hears my cry. And sometimes in trials, it's like getting on a plane, and you don't know where the plane's headed. It's off into the void. It's going into the darkness. You don't know what's going to be the final destination, but we can trust that Christ is our pilot, and he has power to move that plane and to bear you safely through. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. We take courage knowing that we serve Christ, the governor and ruler of all things. But this passage doesn't just testify to Christ's power that we can trust as our creator. We also trust his power as our redeemer. You see, an essential part of miracles, like this walking on water, the stilling of the storm, was to testify and declare that Christ was divine, that he was God and that he was to be believed, and moreover, that he had power to forgive sins. That's what we see in in Mark 2 in the story of the paralytic, where Jesus says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so Christ's power over the created world shows his power over the spiritual world, power even to forgive sins. Our powerful creator is a powerful redeemer. And how does Christ's powerful redemption encourage us in our trials? Well, is that when we're tempted to fear these winds and waves that shake our dwelling places, we can trust that we have such a sure foundation in Christ, the rock of our salvation, that our lives are ultimately built upon the solid rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this divine son, whose power we see so evidently displayed here in this text, calming the wind and waves, did a much more powerful work in giving himself to see sins paid for, to see death and hell defeated, and put down. That is a much more powerful work of Christ. You see, our greatest battle we've fought is not the battle against our trials, but it's the battle of the oppression of sin. And Christ, through his work, has come to our aid to rescue us from this trial of sin, our greatest battle, And if he would do that at the cost of the blood of the Son, if he would come and take on our flesh to save us from this, our greatest enemy, how much more will he be with us in the external trials of life we face? That's the promise we have in Romans 8.32, that God, the one who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give him all things? And so if we can trust Christ to do what's right with our souls, how much more can we trust him to do what's right now and in this world? How much more can we trust him to one day make all things right, to make all things new, to wipe every tear away from our eyes, 
That's what he has purchased by his death and resurrection. That's what the power displayed in this text reminds us of, his far greater power to subdue the storms of hell itself. And there's so much for us in Christ. There's so many amazing benefits he gives to the child of God. To be redeemed by our maker, to have Christ himself interceding for us, to have his presence with us. These things are so high, they're too much for us. And the only fitting response to such grace that Christ would give us is the response of praise and worship. In verse 51, we see Christ got into the boat with the disciples, and the wind ceased, and here's their response. They were utterly astounded. In the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew, we read also that the disciples worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. They were utterly astounded, the text says, at Christ, this glimpse of Christ's glory and power and goodness displayed. It brought them to this jaw-dropping, astounded worship. And we too, when we get a glimpse of just what Christ has done for us in creation, in redemption, in renewing, we too respond with utter amazement. And we need to be praying that God would consistently be giving us a greater glimpse, a brighter glimpse into who he is, that we too might live in amazement of Jesus. We need a clearer glimpse of Christ. And it's this sight of Christ that inspires true praise. And praise is a really powerful medicine, as it were, in the Christian life. What praise does is when we are in troubles, our our vision lowers and all we can see is the waves close up. And close up they are big and menacing and terrifying. You can't see land anywhere. But when you lift your eyes to heaven in praise to God for his glorious salvation, his wondrous works of redemption, it's as if it's lifting you up off that boat into the sky. You can see the land around. You can see the horizon And those waves that once looked so terrifying look far less menacing from the height of the way praise lifts our perspective. And in that way, praise in taking our eyes off ourselves can be a medicine and healing help to our souls. Our response to Christ helps us so much in these situations. And and this passage, it it ends in an interesting way. Uh, We're Christ tells his disciples in verse 51, or so we read that they were utterly astounded, but then in verse 52, but they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is hearkening back to the previous scene. That day, Jesus multiplied the loaves. Just like here, he did a mighty work of power. He worked a mighty miracle among them, but yet it didn't provoke the appropriate response in the disciples. They weren't utterly astounded in his worship. Their hearts were hardened. This display of Christ's power didn't, um, didn't affect them. It didn't cause this response in them. Their hearts were hardened. And it seems that in this trial, their hearts are being softened. As they're learning not to trust in, their, in themselves, as they're seeing their own um, weakness to do anything about their situation. Then when Christ shows his power, in the very same day, he shows his power to them, and they are ready to see him as he is, the Son of God, the utterly astounding one. Very often, 
Trials do soften our hearts and show us our need of Christ. And so I'd say don't waste your trials, but avail yourself of the opportunity, even in suffering, to give Christ the worship for his worthiness. I, I heard a, a, a pastor's wife, she asked her husband one time, she was asking him, um, she's like, I think this is a really tough question. She's like, if you could go to heaven right now, would you? You know, and if, if uh, God's will for your life or his calling on your life, if, let's say that's not an issue, but if you could just pop off right now and be in heaven, you would obviously choose that, right? Wouldn't that be the best choice? And he thought for a while um, and responded saying, no, I don't think that's the best choice. He's like, what? Why? why? Why wouldn't you choose that? And he said this, which I thought was profound. He said, because here on earth is the only time where we get to worship God in our brokenness. You see, forever in heaven, we'll be praising God from the overflowing, abundant joy of perfect peace and happiness. But it's only in this life, it's only in this short time we have on earth, where you will ever be able to praise God from the midst of your pain, from the midst of your suffering. And God is incredibly glorified when even in the midst of the deepest pains, we turn to him and rely upon him and confess that he is our hope, he is our trust, he is our love and life. This life is the only time where you can worship God in your brokenness. So don't neglect the opportunity of giving your worship to God, even in these times. We can take courage in Christ. So if you're currently in a trial, look to Jesus. Remember how he intercedes for you. Look to his presence to comfort you. And allow his power and wisdom and might to inspire courage within you. Take courage, he says. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because he holds the world and he holds you. He prays for you. He promises to be with you. He made you. He redeemed you. He loves you. And there's no other way to go through the trials of life than to go with Jesus. There's no other way to find courage other than in Christ. There's no other place to find joy in the midst of sorrow, comfort in the midst of pain. It's all in Christ. And to know the presence of Christ is a truly sweet and truly beautiful thing, to know that I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we often don't know or understand the ways your hands move in this world, but yet we trust your heart. We trust that as is repeated again and again in the Psalter, that you are good and your steadfast love never fails. We thank you that you are the never failing God, that you are the faithful, caring, comforting God. So help us by your spirit to put all our trust in you, to lay ourselves down at your feet, knowing and trusting your kind and gracious heart. Would you sustain faith? Would you grant hope and peace for each one in this place? We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.